a glorious day, last day of January, a month of birthdays and a month coming of more birthdays. I trust you are keeping track of that and wishing the appropriate persons according to the birthday that is a happy birthday. Pray with me. Blessed, holy, and merciful God our Father, Thou art the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by his confession. And through him and in him you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. For you have transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the beloved blissful kingdom of the Son of thy love. Eternally we will praise and thank thee Thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world. Thank you for willing that we should be holy and blameless before thy holy presence. We bless thy name for thy glorious adoption of us as sons and daughters. Thank you for the eternal kindness of thy will toward us freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And thank you that you have made known to us the mystery of thy will, the summing up of all things in Christ, and all to the praise of the glory of thy grace. Knit our hearts together in love, thus encouraging us. Grant that we might have full assurance in an epicentered, rich knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself. So illumine our minds, soften our wills, delight our affections through thy truth, through thy Christ. We pray this. Amen. Take your Bibles and stand with me from Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 17. And we will just read Colossians 1, 13 through 17. <clears throat> the beautiful, gifted, God-breathed word of the Lord. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For through him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The word of God. You may be seated. 
if we have continued to read as your bulletin shows through verse 20, the sermon title would truly be Jesus Christ, Lord of creation and new creation. My typical sermon manuscript runs 12, 13 pages. To cover that amount of material would have been 25 to 28 pages. So today, Christ, Lord of creation, and thus the shortening of the passage that we read. Well, we have seen the Apostles' Prayer, incredible, giving thanks to God for the faith, love, and hope that existed in the believers, verses 3 to 5. Rejoicing in the hope laid up in heaven, the fathers having qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 5, verse 12. Giving thanks for an epicentered growth in knowledge of the grace of God displayed in the glorious gospel. Verse 6. Giving thanks for Epaphras, faithful slave, faithful minister of the gospel, to this newly called out church in Colossae, verse 7. For the singularity of love and devotion to God in the beautifying Holy Spirit, verse 8. Giving thanks that they be filled with an epicentered real knowledge of the gospel with spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 9, and giving thanks that they can please the Father in every part of their life, bearing fruit by good deeds and growing by the epicentered real knowledge of God, verse 10 giving thanks that they are being strengthened with all power through the Holy Spirit according to the might of his indwelling glory for growth and joyful endurance with the crook in their lots and joyful patience with the difficult people in their life. <laughs> How has that been for you? Failed, endurance with circumstances, crooks that he has presented in my life. Failed in patience with difficult people that he has allowed, even placed in my life. How is that for you? The health of the church is linked to growth in these things. And if I stubbornly resist, I become a something that will have to be, by the Spirit of God, quarantined in a pus pocket, if you will, to prevent contagion with the rest of the body. But then Paul, in verse 12, all the while prayerfully giving thanks to the glorious Father who qualified us, to share in the blessed inheritance 
in the celestial city of the saints in light. Application. As a pastor and shepherd, I encourage you to dwell on one of those verses a day for the next 12 days, reflecting on how thy life interfaces with the wonder of that verse. That would be, that's not done in other kinds of churches. But that would be a very Presbyterian type thing to do. Especially because of our Scottish heritage. It's what they did. It's what they do today. But today, the heart of the gospel, Christ's supremacy in creation. Verses 13 through 14, let's look at explanation. Here is the beginning of our salvation when God delivers us from the depth of ruin into which we were plunged. For where his grace is not, there is darkness. Isaiah says, 60, Arise, shine, for thy light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall appear upon thee. Before Christ, we were under darkness in Darkness, loving darkness. We had an appetite for darkness on our screens. And what we talked about in jokes we listened to and told, we loved darkness. We were under the sway of Satan, prince, the prince of darkness grim. Until the mighty hand of Christ set us free and we were delivered, snatched as it were, and transferred <laughs> to the kingdom of the Son of His love. I think I've shared this before, and while I don't personally remember it, my mother had uh, told it to me several times. We lived in Louisiana for a season. This would have been about the year 1960, 61. Ancient history to some of you. But early, early in my life, I'm three or four, old enough to be able to run. We were at a revival tent meeting. Pews, hard wooden pews are set, but set on sawdust floor. And there had been singing and preaching, and, and apparently it was over, and I'm running between two pews, lickety-split, probably with my eyes shut. You know what children do. But I'm running when a man reaches out and grabs my arm, yanking me 
into the air and transferring me to my mama. Why? And again, I don't recall it, but I'm sure. I bet I bellowed. There was a rattlesnake in the sawdust just ahead of me. <laughs> what a vivid picture of God who sees the impending disaster and yanks transferring to the kingdom of his beloved son. I was saved from physical. We have been saved from eternal spiritual danger. And this is the father's action, the son's receiving, the spirit's sealing of the chosen gifted child of his bounteous love, the Father's action, the Son's receiving, the Holy Spirit's sealing. All praise to the Father for his eternal love. And observe the words in 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This word redemption is, I will not say singularly important in New Testament theology, but it is right up there. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, and I quote, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. Whose doing? The Father's. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's a dangerous thing to walk in pride. And whether the prideful thoughts erupt from your lips or just stay within, that's a dangerous posture to be in. Let your thoughts, let your boasts be in the Lord. Be captivated by what he hath done. Ephesians 1, 7 in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now that more fully explains the sister epistle statement in verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, the question might come to the Colossians, how did this redemption which brings forgiveness occur? The sister epistle that Paul instructs be circulated between the two tells us 
Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Romans 3.24 is even more particularized, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So there's a gifted grace. <laughs> it's a play on words almost because they both are the same word. There's a chorus, chorus, or a verb, noun, a gifted grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. In fact, I think we got this far, I don't recall, but Romans 3 24-25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. In the Greek, you put the word front and center, which you are emphasizing. And in this case, the verb is put front and center. And the verb is in a particular voice, which I'll not explain, but here's how the translation would come out real tight from Romans 3.24. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, set forth, the verb is first, set forth, but it's in the middle voice. So set forth for himself did God as a propitiation in his blood. Wow. Who put Christ on the cross? Ultimately, the Father set forth for himself a propitiation, a get the word pitying or mercy, a um, word that speaks of the offended ones being satisfied, a propitiation in his blood. Well, this is Isaiah 53 language, 5 and 6. But he was pierced through, say it with me, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, the whipping for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
Jesus took the hit that you deserved. Jesus took the hit for the foul attitude that you had this morning. The words you spoke last night. The stuff you looked at this past week. Jesus took the hit for that. That should impact us. Our liberty, this is our freedom. This is what God has done for us in the face of death. That our sins are not imputed to us because they were imputed to Jesus. Holy Scripture says that this redemption was procured through the blood of Christ by God the Father. First Peter 2, he himself, say it with me, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Mm. Verses 15 through 17. He is, starts off saying, he is the image of the invisible God. Now observe in chapter 3, verse 10, look at it please, the extrapolation, the further carrying out of this idea that Paul gives, saying believers, chapter 3, verse 10, believers have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge, that's epigenosco, according to the image of the one who created him. What is the imagio Dei? What is the image of of God theologically. Deeper still is the question of what it means for Christ to be the image of God. This is huge. For the emphasis in chapter 1 verse 15 is Christ's revelation of God and thus is the image in accord with which mankind was formed. Now that is monumental. Christ, the image of God, is the image with which the form, the prototype, if you will, in accord with which mankind is formed. In this respect, Colossians 1.15 is very similar to John's depiction of the word in his prologue when he says the word was face to face 
toward God, verse 1, and the word was God, verse 1. And then verse 18, and thus has made him the Father known. Thus has exegeted, the word there is the Greek word we get exegesis from. The Son has exegeted the Father. And then we go to Hebrews 1.3 that we read, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. So the first line of this Christ-exalting section from 115 through verse 20, we'll not get there this week, may then identify Christ as that original image in accordance with which all mankind is created. Thus, chapter 1, verse 15, identifies Christ not with Adam. Identifies Christ not with Adam but was created in the image of God, and thus the original image according to which Adam was created. Now this is very harmonious with Romans 5.14. 5.14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now you recall type-antitype language. Type is what refers to that which was in shadowy form, that which was not totally clear. Anti-type is a theological term for the fullness of the full reality which came. The shadow, this is Hebrew's language, was the temple, tabernacle first, temple in Jerusalem. But according to Jesus, he himself was the and is the temple, the anti-type. And this language, if I can say it in Sunday school language, Adam was a chalk drawing in comparison to the man, Jesus Christ. Adam was a flannel board picture put by a Sunday school teacher of Jesus in comparison with the man, Jesus Christ. It wasn't really about Adam. It was about the lamb that was known before the foundation of the world. It was about a desire on the heart of the father and son for the son to become part of creation to become the Adam. Adam was a mistake. 
This was God's ordained plan. You say, did God cause the sin? No, but he uses the sin to gain greater glory. Adam sinned, taking the bite. But God gains ultimate glory because Adam was just created in the blessed image that was seen in the mind of God in of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's Calvin. Quote, The psalm is this, that God in himself, in his naked majesty, is invisible, and that not to the eyes of the body merely, but also to the understandings of men, and that he is revealed to us in Christ alone, that we may behold him as in a mirror. Wow. The depth of verse 15, first phrase, is such that we cannot really plumb it. He is the image of the invisible God. Then it says, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn of all creation. Well, what does firstborn mean? Our granddaughter Lily was firstborn. Um, who else is firstborn? Raise a show of hands. I'm a firstborn. Is that what we're talking about? The common translation, firstborn of all creation, listen carefully, could suggest that Christ is a created being based on the idea of being born and thus suggesting a time when the Son was not. This was the conclusion that Bishop Arius embraced, who spanned the third and fourth centuries. Bishop Arius formed what is known of as Arianism, a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, it is presently and particularly taught by the Kingdom Hall, Jehovah Witnesses. This is Arianism in our day. But this stimulated much Christological reflection, thinking about Christ. Who did he say he was? What was said about him, particularly in John's Gospel, and resulting eventually in the Nicene Creed's affirmation that today we confess, and I quote, eternally begotten of the Father, See, that phrase destroys that he came to exist at a point in time. No, whatever begotten means, it was an eternal begottenness. 
eternally begotten of the Father, then begotten, not made. Whatever begotten means, it does not mean that Christ was made eternally begotten of the Father, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, of one nature, one essence, one substance with the Father. Now, doctrine. You say, I thought that was doctrine. <laughs> that was just explanation. Doctrine. How are we to understand this second phrase of verse 15? Well, the passage flows naturally, saying, look at verse 16, By him all things were created, and all things have been created through him and for him. By him, through him, for him is the breathed out scripture's explanation of what firstborn means. So while it is challenging to understand precisely the very meanings of each of these prepositions, Perhaps Paul is not intending specificity here, but the Spirit breathes out that all of God's creation work was in terms of and in reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this passage does not teach that Christ God the Son was created. No, no. That is a damning heresy. This passage calls Christ the firstborn of creation, speaking of his sovereign supremacy over all creation. For Christ to be called the firstborn of creation is to say Christ is preeminent over creation. Christ is supreme. Psalms 89.27, an illustration of the same use of this word. God says of David, Psalms 89.27, I will appoint him, David, to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Well, David certainly wasn't the firstborn king. How can God call David? It's because it means the supreme, most high, potentate, preeminent one over the kings of the earth. And then Hebrews 1, 6, likewise. Oh, Hebrews is rich. The question comes in 5 and 6 of Hebrews 1. For to which of the angels did he, the Father, ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? Well, none. <laughs> 
God has never said that to any angel. And again, verse 6, Hebrews 1, 6, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. What are we seeing? We're given a picture of the incarnate Son of God when the eternal, uncreated God the Son took flesh, became a man. And when he became a man, there was some point in time when the Father told the angels to do a thing unthinkable. Worship a man. <laughs> you don't worship men. But this is not just a man. He's God in the flesh. He is singular in his existence. He is the only one that has one foot in uncreated deity and one foot in created humanity in the body, in the womb of Mary. Let all the angels of God worship him. This is what firstborn means. It means he is king and he is supreme and he is preeminent. Well, further observe the category, categories over which Christ is supreme in verses 15 and 16. He's supreme over all things created. He's supreme over everything in the heavens and on earth. He's supreme over all visible reality and invisible reality. He is supreme over thrones, dominions. You know, a throne is a highly particularized thing, but it speaks of a vastness of domain, dominion. He's supreme over thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, and then the bookend comes back. It started with all things created. It ends all things. So clear here is that Paul positions Christ over the entire angelic realm. Now, the belief existed in ancient Colossae and across the pagan world that spiritual beings have critical control over the affairs of persons, individual and collective. This is true in our day. Third world countries think like this. 
This is why there was an altar to an unknown God, lest they offend. And in a very possible sense, Western man's intense, determined pursuit for extraterrestrial life runs dangerously in the direction of a higher form of existence than ourselves to give us wisdom and insight, knowledge of what comes after death, knowledge of where my mother or father is, opens a dangerous door in the direction that Paul argues Christ is supreme. It wouldn't matter to me if they found little green men running around on the moon. Christ is supreme over them too. But I doubt if they will. Paul's emphasis here, uh, I'm waxing philosophical briefly, Suppose extraterrestrial life is found. Question, what's their plan of salvation? How will the creator God save that world? For rest assured, it will be a fallen world. So is there going to be a Jesus there too? Do you see this whole trajectory messes with your understanding of the glorious grace of God for us in Christ Jesus. Christians should not be reading that kind of stuff or watching that kind of stuff. Now application, a little bit more intense. There is no difference between this ancient pagan belief and spiritual powers influencing the affairs of men and toying with the demonic realm through tarot cards, seances, seance-like games, movies involving witchcraft and or demonic powers, and the evil that's out there just goes on and on. Christ is supreme over every witch, sorcerer, conjurer, necromancer, demonic spirit, spirit guide. Christ is supreme. And a child of God whose life is hidden with Christ in God the Father, wouldn't have any appetite for that stuff. Too in love with Christ to read the lies from the enemy. Well, 15 through 16, again, I want to quote Calvin <clears throat> here. He's too good. When I quote him, it's because I can't say it any better. I'm not sure I fully understand it, so just quote it. 
spiritual beings, angels, are placed in subjection to Christ for four reasons. In the first place, because they were created by him. Do you understand? God, through Christ, made the devil. He wasn't the devil when God made him. He was good. He was Lucifer, bright morning star, the anointed cherub. But like us, he fell of his own choice. God did not make him evil. God did not cause him to fall. But God created him as surely as he created Adam. Back to Calvin. First, because they were created by him. Secondly, because their creation ought to be viewed as having a relation to him, Christ, as their legitimate end, bullseye, purpose, reason for existence. Third, because he himself existed always prior to the creation. There was a time when Lucifer was not. There has never been a time when God the Son was not. Fourth, because he, Christ, and this is incredible, sustains them by his power and upholds them in their condition. And at the same time, he does not affirm this merely as to angels, but also to the whole world. Thus he places the Son of God in the highest seat of honor, that he might have preeminence over angels as well as men, and may bring under control all creatures in heaven and in earth. End quote. John Calvin. Amen. Now verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. That's tight. ESV and New American Standards say exactly alike. Christ as God the Son existed before creation took place. Christ as the eternal word existed before creation itself. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word, the Logos, who would become flesh, already was there with the Father and the Spirit before the world was made. 1, 3 of John. All things came into being by or through him, 
and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So verse 17 shifts the focus presenting the role of Christ in creation and says in him all things hold together. So we're not talking about source, we're not talking in terms of cause and effect, now we're talking about sustenance, ongoing provision for existence. This verb here in verse 17 holds together all things, hold together. This verb is in the perfect tense which, quote, represents an action completed in the past but has continuing results. So the action took place in the past, but the continuing results are still there. That's the tense of hold together. The universe, visible, invisible, owes its continuing coherence, its cohesion, that like a good puzzle fits together to Christ. What holds the universe, the cosmos together is not an idea, it's not a virtue, but a person in the flesh risen Christ. He is behind the sunlight, the stars, the trees, the squirrels running, the grass growing, everything, Paul says here, guided by the Spirit, everything is upheld by Christ. Without Christ's minuscule continuing flow of divine power, every electron would cease to exist. Every nuclei would cease existing. Gravity itself would dissipate into nothingness. Plants would cease to orbit. If they were even there still, they would cease to exist. In an article, 2010, October 1st, Scientific American, the article title, The Elusive Theory of Everything. It was written by Stephen Hawking and Leonard Malada now. But here's a summary statement of it. Physicists have long sought to find one final theory that would unify all of physics. Instead, they may have to settle for several. In scientific jargon, it's called TOE, T-O-E, a theory of everything. They've tried electromagnetism, gravity, string theory, multiverse theory. They've tried everything. Nothing works. 
science's elusive theory of everything, though, has been known and understood by theologians for 2,000 years. His name, his name is Christ. He is the explanation behind everything. The Reformation Study Bible offers this also on verse 17. Some of you can read this with me. This verse makes explicit what was implicit in verse 16, that Christ existed before creation. He himself, therefore, is not created, nor can it be said, as followers of Arius later maintained, that there was a time when he was not. The thought that Jesus is moment by moment sustainer of the universe whose unifying power causes the created order to cohere is echoed in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. That's why we read Application. Am I thankful daily? that the Father has delivered me from darkness's domain, transferring me to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Am I a thankful child of God, giving thanks that I don't have that appetite anymore? I really don't want that anymore. Do I understand that in Christ is full sufficiency for me? In Christ I have full redemption, the forgiveness of my sin. I don't need any other spirits or gods. I don't need any keeping of the laws of Torah. Because Christ has fulfilled every need for me. Do I worship him as the God-man, Christ Jesus, whom heaven's angels are told to worship? That is so huge that he stopped and told the angelic realm, let all my angels worship him, am I? Molly, you can probably make your way to the piano. Yeah, we'll have music here soon. Finally, Calvin observes, we must be careful not to look for God anywhere else. So where do I spend the brunt of my discretionary time? It needs me in this book. It needs me listening to this book read, listening to this book preached, listening to this book taught. Calvin, we must be careful not to look for God anywhere else for apart from Christ, 
whatever offers itself to us in the name of God will turn into an idol. Turn with me as we approach the time of communion. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Because Hebrews chapter 1 does wondrously the same thing that Colossians chapter 1 does. Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to the Christ-exalting words of this book. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Well, that's Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God and upholds all things by the word of his power. We just saw that in Colossians. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That statement, when he had made purification of sins, ties to Colossians 1. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Pray with me. Father, we thank and praise you for the glorious, glorious gospel that you have graced us with, the good news you have graced us with, snatching us first from darkness, placing us in the kingdom of the Son of thy love, our finding redemption in Christ, our finding forgiveness of sin in Christ, because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We bless you. We bless you. Father, we love you. Glorious risen Son, our Messiah, Lord Jesus, we love you. Hear us now as we approach this beautiful sacrament instituted by thee for thy people. In Christ's name, amen.